If you visit rural America, many of the roads will have names like farm to market, implying an ebb and flow of life centered around agriculture. As America developed in the 20th century, many of these places grew less populated, and those near city centers were replaced by shopping malls and suburban housing as the country shifted from a rural farming model to a more urban manufacturing and services-based economy. For farmer Tom, who joins us this evening, his family has remained for generations in the occupation that built America, setting him apart from the millions of atomized and rootless consumers that populate the cities of today. We discuss how the country shifted from a nation of small, local, and decentralized growers to one of large, multinational, and centralized big farming that separates production and consumption as part of the ever-churning marketplace that defines the modern agricultural complex. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing Hello, welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century Podcast. I'm Hans Lander. Today we have two very estimable co-hosts with us. We have Mr. Adam Smith. Hey everyone. And Mr. Nick Mason. Buenas noches. Today we are joined by a fan of the show who actually had a very great email response to our episode on agriculture. We were sort of putting off doing a sequel to that episode, but um, figured we would fit this in as soon as we could, uh, because I think that there's a lot of good content to be mined from that, and uh, I'd like to introduce Tom, Farmer Tom. Hey guys, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to have someone who actually knows what they're talking about. None of us are farmers. Yeah, and so, Tom, uh, you're a true one percenter. Yeah, there there are ninety nine percent of us who are not farmers out here in this country. Literally, he, you know, really is the one percent. Not that one percent, but yeah. Hey, what do you call the rest of us? Civilians? That's what the military guys call the rest of the population. Uh, idiots i don't know um, <laughs> okay dependent yes we don't yeah i guess we don't yeah i don't know we don't really talk about you guys yeah wow that's <laughs> well that term itself is actually interesting because it, if you ever i mean they call it the flyover states i have a, actually a quote i'd like to read later uh with regard to how people view the middle of the country but if you go through the middle of or the midwest of the united states you see how depopulated it is and it is primarily dedicated to growing crops and obviously you cannot live on top of a a crop you know that you're trying to extract from the ground so it's basically it's it's open land and the majority of the population does live in cities as the sort of city term would indicate and it's it's quite different from how it used to be for thousands of years where people live close to where they grew their own food 
And in the United States, not that long ago, as we talked about in our last episode, this was how most Americans lived. And now it's, it's completely reversed. Yeah, definitely. Um, when you just drive around out in the country and you can see where old farmsteads used to be and where there would be one, you know, every quarter mile or something. And now there's one every half mile, every mile instead where there might be still an old shed that's sitting, sitting there just in a, in like in the middle of a field, basically that they're just planting around it. They might have a shed just to keep equipment in, but otherwise you can really see the depopulation of the area, especially, um, you know, just drive through any small town and there's, you know, there's nothing there. And, and Hans, please jump in here, but I have a question for you, Tom, before we actually get into kind of new content. This is with regard to the last episode where we sort of had the general thesis that the United States was fundamentally founded upon the principles of agriculture and agricultural export in particular as the basis for its, its growth and prosperity for much of its, its history. Uh, that's obviously changed, but still some of that is true. Uh, a lot of our geography is still affected by it. But what do you think of that? Of that thesis that the foundations of the United States are agricultural. Yeah, I would I would agree with that probably. Um, just that, you know, when this land was settled, that there was nothing here, and there was you know some of the greatest farmland in the world. That was just open prairie, you know. What you know? Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't the nation have been built on agriculture that way? I think that huge part of most of the U.S. economy in one way or another, even still, uh, interacts with agriculture, which is unique. Most countries don't have a highly developed transportation system or um, logistic supply system, both internally and for uh, export use, various ports on both coasts, or actually three coasts, really, if you count the, uh, the Gulf Coast. It's extremely, extremely important for a lot of those industries to have a constant supply of agriculture. I can't even estimate how many billions of tons of agriculture are probably, not billions of tons, but maybe tens of millions or hundreds of millions of tons of agriculture exported from the United States annually out of several major port cities. Uh, And the revenue alone from those exports through those port cities, it probably funds most city operations. I'm thinking specifically of several port cities um, in Georgia, in South Carolina, in uh, California, in Washington, completely based around exporting as much grain, as much soybean, as much beef uh, as possible to all parts of the world. And the internal supply chain system employs hundreds of thousands of people, probably, I think, actually millions. The The internal trucking system for the United States employs upwards oh, yeah. of 10, 10, 10 million people. If you if you include all the sort of supporting, I mean, not just the drivers, which is, I think, about 3 million, but if you add in all the supporting right. functions, warehousing workers, uh, administrative staff, uh, and, and Andrew Yang actually cited this uh, concept, which makes total sense. All the people that support the the gas stations and the diners that are along the way for truck drivers to stop at, uh, that's another three to 4 million. So there's a, there's a lot of people involved in moving things around. Not just that, but 
every single supply chain analyst coming out of business school is employed by this sector. Every single um, supply chain engineer in mechanical engineering, for automotive engineering, for all the kinds of specialized trucks, something the U.S. actually still leads the way in is uh, a huge amount of internal uh, R&D and infrastructure usage for agricultural supply chain supply chain operations. Um, you know, the, I think one of our theses in the last episode was that the country was basically built in a lot of ways on this this backbone of commercial farming very early on. That everyone, a lot of people were involved in farming. There was this sort of this figure that's often thrown around, 90% or whatever, the population at one point was involved in the agricultural sector. Uh, but a lot of that was, were, you know, guys who lived in Boston owned a couple plots of land 100 miles, or maybe 50 miles more likely, in somewhere in rural Massachusetts. And that was one of their various sources of revenue, because at the time you had to have multiple sources of revenue, nearly everyone did. No one had a single source of revenue. It was extremely rare. And because land was so cheap and it was so easy to get, and there, there were a lot of legal constraints that had been removed in the colonies uh, in regards to land ownership and land usage that were very different from legal constraints in um, the Netherlands and England, everyone got involved with growing something as a side business. But what that ended up doing was creating a lot of knowledge, creating a lot of um, sort of unintended innovation and unintended infrastructure, more than just physical infrastructure, but institutional infrastructure for building up your agricultural supply chain and exporting it and actually doing something with it and getting value out of it or even adding value to it. There was an entire set of industries just based around what do we do once we have all this excess agricultural product that we have that no one else is able to do. No one else really invested the way that the United States did in those industries. Well, if I can ask Tom, um, without getting into too much specifics, uh, how did your family get into the, the farming business? Um, so I would be the fifth generation that is farming. Um, Basically, when they came over from Germany and settled, my let's see, it would have been my fourth great grandpa owned a tavern, and his son bought some ground and started farming, and that was basically it. And it's just been in the same area, not necessarily the same ground that we've been farming, but um, in that same area. So, th so he purchased locale. it. So it was it was not a homestead act kind of land grant. Um, actually, that might have been a yeah, that might have been a land grant because that would have been about that time that they were doing it in the state. So, okay, I think it probably would have been. Um, and I, I don't remember, but it exactly wasn't a how, huge amount. Yeah, of where you know, like they were getting like whole quarter sections or something. I think it was just like a small amount, so okay. I couldn't be certain if it was uh, a land grant or if it was something that, you know, if somebody had got a land grant and then parceled it off and sold it, you know. Right. When you say I think he big, started and, with about big and like large 40 acres. For, for people who are not farmers, maybe you could help us. Uh, so you said 40, 40 acres? Is that what you said? I think that's probably about what he started off with, yeah. Okay. And that that's get, gets to some of my later questions about sustainability. How much do you actually need to feed your family? And um, and then 
if you just for anybody who's never done this, uh, what a fascinating thing to do is to see, as I mentioned, how the geography of the country is affected by a lot of these agricultural uh, trends and policies. You can literally see the division of places uh, in the Midwest by this land grant system where everything is laid out in a grid. There are these gigantic squares Mm -hmm. on the satellite picture of how the farms are organized, which is extremely unique in the world because the United States was an undiscovered country in, in essence. And if you look at the older parts of the world, the plots are much smaller. They're much more, uh, heterogeneous and they, they, they crisscross each other. If you look at China, I mean, they, they even got into <laughs> farming the, the mountains yeah. because they're so desperate for land. Right. But in the prairie, I mean, it was, it was basically just covered in, uh, you know, Buffalo, uh, and nobody was farming it. So this was chopped up as the typical American approach. It's basically just to numeric, numerify it and, and just coordinate off and, there's not really too much style to it. It's basically just very utilitarian. That That's kind of the approach that it seems like the country took. And everything is basically like cube, cubism uh, in the Midwest. And I don't know how big those are. I think they were they were pretty large. But, I mean, I'm guessing that's, I don't know, probably more than 40 acres. But you could tell me, Tom. Yeah, I would imagine that when during the land grant, I think it was a quarter quarter of a section a section 640 acres so yeah that number jumped out too um is that is that how much is in a square mile yeah a section square mile yeah okay yeah there you go so maybe we can use this opportunity to pick up where we left off where hans we had ended sort of around the 1920s where people may have had sections this this big but they were farming it with teams of horses and i really have no idea what that's like i mean it just seems like a lot of work even with the the uh, draft animals helping you out, uh, just the amount of time that that would take and the amount of labor required to basically process that large of a chunk of land, and you're literally like looking at the dirt as as it as it's plowed up, and then you have to you have to seed it, you have to water right. it, however that's done, um, especially back then. So maybe we can pick up, you know, in the 1920s. So right before. The 1920s, the tractor really starts to be introduced widely. And there's three general um, elements that come out of that that are somewhat important. A, that we actually have open geared gas tractors, which are kind of dangerous. Um, uh, they claim a lot of lives early on. This becomes a very contentious political topic that influences a lot of the politics at the time with people like William Jennings Bryan. A lot of populist figures start to get very incensed regarding um, farm failure and farm problems and dangers on the farm. Eventually, uh, later on, uh, towards beginning 1920, they really start to develop closed gear tractors. And by this time, the mechanization's improved, the engineering's improved. Everything generally is uh, improved for farms. And then towards the end of this period, uh, combines with auxiliary engines that are basically meant for prairies become developed. So suddenly, uh, there's a lot of options for farmers. Farmers were able to maintain and purchase tractors fairly easily. 
Um, tractors were designed in a way at the time uh, similar to Model T uh, from Ford where they can easily be repaired. Normal people who don't have a mechanical engineering degree can figure out the problem or they can go to someone locally who understands them. This creates a lot of economic multipliers. But as we begin the 20s, uh, and mechanization is everywhere. Uh, commercial fertilizer explodes in usage. Everyone is using commercial fertilizer. I think that uh, in that decade, about 6.8 million tons annually of commercial fertilizer are used. Which is, at the time, an in, in, in insane figure. If you consider that the population is about under half of what it is now at the time, we're utilizing that much petroleum just to feed people. And now this is the 1920s. Great Depression hasn't hit yet. Dust Bowl hasn't hit yet. People are living large. People are eating a lot. People are living great lives. Uh, their calorie count is improving. Everything is going great. So a lot of innovations come from that as well. And this sort of, there's a lot of mechanical engineering innovations, one of which being, I think, the first bread slicing machine comes around this time. So that you're able to have mechanized uh, value-added food production, which is something the United States really, again, as I said before, revolutionizes around this time. How do we not just take an agricultural product, how do we add value to it? How do we build a supply chain around that? Well, in order to solve that equation, that's a thousand employment positions, probably, given at the time frame, is you have to have a whole bureaucracy because technology hasn't really caught up yet. Um, so easily, a thousand jobs created just in the process of how do we build a bread cutter? And then there's a process of employing 10,000 people to make bread cutters and to man the factories and man the trucks. So huge explosion, just with that, you know, that's kind of an anachronism at the time. There's a huge explosion in the value added for agriculture. Agriculture is not changing substantially. It's fairly dangerous. Less and less people are doing it. It's not really growing very well. Practice is actually starting to decline. More people are moving to the cities because the majority of work is in cities or nearby major cities. The one difference being that uh, the cities were not so focused on what we'd call coastal cities. Larger towns, smaller cities are doing quite well. They're all growing fairly at the same rate. Um, the country is very, even though it's losing its agricultural class, it's growing fairly evenly. There isn't a dispro disproportionate county uh, or you know coastal to in inland county growth rate. Everyone is having a lot of children. Everyone is doing well because the farm output is great. Mechanized farming has solved a lot of the problems of population growth that a lot of the American um, Gilded Age figures are attempting to solve. 30s come around. Two things really happen. Of course, you've all heard this in your high school textbooks. A, the Great Depression, and B, the Dust Bowl. Uh, the Dust Bowl, I think, has kind of a kind of a forgotten history. It's always made as a, something that happened as an addendum to the Great Depression. Regardless of what happened with the Great Depression, it likely would have happened anyways. Most of it seemed to have been ecological. Um, there was a series of really devastating dust storms uh, 
I think from 32 to 33, there were over 50 across the Great Plains. Um, this kind of frequency had not been seen in a very long time, and the, the extent to which they did damage had not been seen in a long time. Um, like about 100 million acres of land were affected. So even if there had been no Great Depression, and even if there had been no other major economic problems, there would have been a dust bowl. There would have been serious problems in the American heartland. There would have been a lot of loans going bad. There would have been bad finances and, and so on. And some of this has to do with actually something that Tom brought up in his email to us, which is over-farming and poor farming practices. I don't know if, if you... I don't know if we're seeing another dust will happen anytime soon, but I know you, you did mention to us that you think that there is some bad long-term farming practices going on right now. Well, maybe you can explain to us what over-farming means, if you're familiar with that, that term at least, Tom. Well, I think it would probably over-cultivation would mostly be what it would boil down to, so... Just, you know, guys are just working up the ground too much and, you know, really ripping the ground. So, where you're getting all the nutrients the types out of, of crops it. grown uh, affect that? I know that the, the Jared Diamond thesis involved the maize production in the Americas. Um, some, yeah. Well, because, I, you know, I live in the Corn Belt, so it's all corn and soybeans. And you're, you know, you see guys out there that are, you know, just plowing up the ground and it's becoming less and less prevalent i would say but i mean some guys still do it where it's just you know we do a lot of no-till and um you know my dad and i were out walking around the field just this spring and he said you know if <laughs> if i was a crop farmer all i would do is no-till you know just because it's so one it's so easy and then two you can just see how how uh how it's improved the health of the soil just in the past, you know, seven years or so that we've really started doing it. So is it, is it kind of like you're, you're reaping the benefits on the back end, the long term, as opposed to the short run? Cause obviously people are tilling the soil for a reason. They didn't just do it randomly because as you yeah, point out, there's a lot yeah. of work involved. You have and to I mean, rip the it, soil. Yeah. And in some instances you, you need to, but I think sometimes it seems like it's overdone a little bit. Mm-hmm. In some in some places where I don't, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense to me why you would need to go rip up the, you know, why you're out there disking or cultivating, or even using, you know, these big deep rippers. Do you need to do that it, for it, changing crops if you decide to do that, or can you do that? Uh, maybe, or just to if you're trying to reduce compaction, you know, because you've got these huge mm-hmm. guys that are out there with you know massive equipment, right. and if they're out there when it's too wet. And, you know, you're just packing the dirt down, so you might need to. But then again, it's all about timing. Um, but I don't know. You could just look at the – you can just see the difference in the soil of – and they've done studies to where um, it was pretty interesting. I think it was – I don't know if it was the DNR or the NRCS, but they did – they buried underwear – like out in fields and like one field it was it had been ripped up every year and they buried underwear and like the underwear is still intact why and underwear the one i don't i think it was something you know just to grab people's attention okay 
like check out our dirty underwear. I forget what it was called, but it was just something to grab people's attention, you know. Okay. And um, the one it was no till. I mean, they buried it pretty deep, so it wouldn't be affected by tillage. Mm-hmm. And then one it was um, they cultivated every other year. Uh, another was I think they might have used like strip tillage, just a different type of tillage where it's not as invasive. Um, and then another was no-till, and then they checked them after like two years or three years. And the no-till one, like the microbes and the worms in the soil had just eaten all the underwear in the no-till one. Wow. So that's like a good sign of, you know, a healthy soil that mm-hmm. you have all of that, all the, the microbes and the, and the worms. Worms is a big sign. Like if you dig down in a field and you right. see a lot of worms you've got great soil or, Definitely. you know, your the soil health is, is great. But then like the one where they were ripping the ground every year, it was, you know, the, the underwear was basically still all intact. And how much, um, how much fertilizer do you have to do with no-till? Um, you have to do some, uh, you still have to do some, um, not as much, but, you're still you're still putting out nitrogen okay well the the acronym is npk right so it's nitrogen potassium yes, yeah and f- or it's uh, phosphorus and potassium i think that's the phosphorus the and potassium yeah yeah mm-hmm. and uh we talked with uh one of our previous guests misha popoff about this and he was saying that basically the the supply chain for getting i think it was phosphorus uh is going to run out in like 50 years at current yeah i remember him saying that yeah yeah at, at the current you know, level of technology and he was saying that also there's nobody working on or has a solution for when that happens uh, any quick comments on that yeah i guess i'm not too familiar with that i was surprised when he had said that so i i guess i can't really i don't really have a comment on that okay you didn't mention um that you're more monoculture based uh, you're you're more basically invested in cattle do you think that monoculture is from what i remember reading uh you know in preparation for this monoculture was practiced to an extent by a lot of the smaller scale early farmers in the united states so you had a lot of guys who were just rice farmers or who were just corn farmers or who were just wheat farmers there you know if, if you couldn't support the cost and of complexity and managing multiple kinds of crops with different crop rotations every year it was much easier and in fact a little bit more sustainable to just focus on one kind of crop entirely do you think that if people just went back towards that and sort of decentralized a lot of these multiculture practices that farming would be a little bit easier to manage and a little bit better thinking long term I'm not sure. I know. I mean, it would depends on how how things would break down. I guess if if you were become less decentralized and you needed crops for a region, then things then people would probably diversify a little more. But since you know, in my area, we're growing most of the corn that's grown basically in the world and 
it, not that we can't grow anything else, but why would you grow anything else? Is basically what it boils down to. Well, this is another question of mine. How do you measure or how do you determine what to grow and what to, to farm? I mean, is it based on money or is it based on, I mean, I don't think I'm kind of answering my own question here. I think that's the reason you do what you do, but there's other ways to look at it. So in other words, you could try to get the most output for calorie output of calories for uh, energy uh, input of petroleum or uh labor uh, calories uh, input. There's many ways to sort of slice this up. And so what is your metric for determining what is the best return or yield? And and where do uh, <clears throat> federal corn subsidies come in? It's money. And for us, the federal corn subsidies don't play a, a part. We really don't get that, get hardly anything for that. But we're, I mean, that's mostly because we're running all of our corn through the cattle so it's not like right. we're um you know selling it or we're getting paid to grow it to sell and is that stuff uh giving you like a price floor or it's a it's a guaranteed like purchase i mean that, that was sort of like depression stuff where they would kind of have quotas for things it was more a quantity not price but what what is the subsidy triggered on like what when do you get the subsidy and by how, how much do you get like how does that determine? It's a, it's a price, um, it's price based. Once it hits a certain low, then anything right. like if it goes below there, then it's you're guaranteed. You know, you're guaranteed that much. And so what if it goes, if, if the price generally drops, that means there's less demand for something. And so if you're still able to get at a higher price, there might be an oversupply. If I'm not mistaken. And so where does that corn go? You follow where, where I'm going. You know, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I, I really have no. Clue. Probably Africa is my guess. Yeah, you know, I'm sure destroying their farming in industry. Maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was something Misha was mentioning because he was sort of saying it's, uh, you know, you could call it conspiracy, but basically it's kind of U.S. government policy to have a surplus of agricultural output in order to do a couple things. One, it's sort of, uh, you know, food aid. Uh, brinksmanship you know, sort of like bombard a country with food aid and so they have to do what you want kind of thing and the other thing he was talking about which I'd never heard before was basically uh, I think it's phosphorus again is a key feedstock of gunpowder and so if other countries had their own domestic phosphorus manufacturing industries or the artificial kind of phosphorus at least uh, there would be they would have a key military advantage that was an interesting point I'd heard but there seems to be yeah, government policy. Yeah, I've never policy. heard that before. I found that mm -hmm. interesting too. Yeah. But yeah, overall, there there seems to be a U.S. government push to get agricultural output up or high enough. And and the other thing, I while we're talking about corn for a moment, uh, how has ethanol affected that industry? I mean, I guess for you, again, it's for the cattle ultimately, so you don't really pay attention too much to that. But have you seen anything in your neck of the woods with uh, ethanol? Yeah, that's that's pretty big around here. There's always, you know, the Corn Growers Association is always pushing for ethanol and for, you know, ethanol subsidies. Mm -hmm. um, that's also another thing where, you, you know, is it any good or, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Well, if, we did a you, couple you know, shows. In the long term, if it's mm -hmm. going to be sustainable or not or how, you know, how... Um, how dependable is that? 
I'm not against it. I mean, this is my personal opinion, but we we did a couple shows on kind of energy and infrastructure. You can kind of like add up the various shows where we talked about this topic, and I'd say there's a couple shows on it. And the thing is, ethanol, I think, produces about 10% of our current gasoline consumption in the United States. And that takes up, and you correct me here, but it takes up like a good chunk of the corn uh, cropland. It's like 30%, I think. And so you're obviously not going to be able to produce all the gasoline that we consume with ethanol, even if you dedicated all the corn that we've got towards it. And there's been other statistics about, you know, if you had to do this for diesel, you'd have to plant like half the country with soybeans. So it depends on what your yield is and current technology just doesn't yield enough. There's some interesting stuff going on in the biofuel industry with regard to, um, algae uh, for diesel production, which is quite fascinating. The yields are much higher than ethanol. You can get something like 10 times as much per acre if you grow algae. Uh, And then the way of extracting the fuel from that is somewhat uh, technical, but in challenging for a lot of people, that's that's really kind of the crux of it because you can grow the algae, but then getting the the lipids out of it is what the the hard part is. Um, But Regardless, you'd have to dedicate a lot of land to this, and that's the that's the problem, because we still need to eat, and so there'd be a lot of changes, and ultimately we'd have to reduce the amount of petroleum we consume uh, if we wanted to make this sustainable. Uh, by how much is sort of debatable, but we, we'd probably have to see a drawdown of about two thirds, if not more. I've heard estimates of seventy five percent if we wanted to u- use renewable sources of petroleum for our current. Uh, current system and it it would have to change obviously um to adjust and that's why you you know you do see a lot of uh electrification going on in the automotive industry whether they want to or not that the fact of the matter is they just um you know they're not going to be able to find enough petroleum to to run this stuff forever it's just impossible if our population continues to grow especially so ultimately the priority is is eating you know i don't think anybody's going to argue with that but the it, it, we can save some of this stuff for later. Um, I think we're kind of drifting off the the history part, but this is kind of where I wanted to go with the conversation ultimately. So, so uh, pick us up about where we left off. Yeah. So early '30s, dust bowl develops, but around the time, uh, or part of the reason, I, I suppose, why the dust bowl develops. Because again, there's a lot of over farming. There's poor farming practices. Immediately, uh, there's a realization amongst most of the, I suppose, academic class. There's an, there, you know, in the 1910s and 20s, you really started to see the rise of U.S. academia involved with agricultural studies and agricultural science and the economics of agriculture. But there's a realization that they had focused totally on the wrong goal, that basically they had all been oriented towards a lot of agricultural science focused on growth, purely on growth. How do we extract as much possible crop from the ground at any given day? That was the basis of their their models. That changed drastically, and the Dust Bowl developed right off the bat. They immediately changed towards, well, we need to, paradoxically, they wanted to engage more in petroleum-based farming. They thought that if they could electrify 
rural sectors of the United States. They could deliver information to them quicker about weather patterns, about farming practices. They thought it was mostly an information problem, that the farmers weren't getting enough information. Um, but you have to remember that already by this point, you had had the rise of the farm bill, you had early subsidies, you had a lot of incentives for growth that weren't always generally very economical. And you had already seen the rise of large farming conglomerates, not nearly as large as they are now, but you had already seen the beginnings of that, the beginnings of vertical integration with the rest of the farming supply chain. So there was not much incentive for growth because no one was focused on it and no one saw the need. Um, and majority of farmers who were not always based in the Midwest or who lived um, a very different lifestyle and had very traditional farms actually fared fairly well in the Dust Bowl. It was not uh, a massive catastrophe for a lot of people. Most farmers in the United States actually survived the Dust Bowl just fine. What uh, was the Dust Bowl? I mean, just to ask a dumb question, but like, I, I just had pictures of dust, you know, rolling over, you know, dead fields of farmland. But is that really what, literally what it was, or was it? Sort it was of like essentially a what it was. Thing? It was just dust storms. Okay, it was a. It was a did, persistent, as I as I said, right. over the course of two years. It was a natural disaster, or it was, it, was yeah, it a market based thing where people couldn't afford to like pr pr properly farm it. I mean, it's got to be a little bit more complicated. I'm assuming, but. It is more complicated. I mean, I suppose it's more complicated. Well, Part it, of it was financial. It, it compounded because the dead crops then produced more debris. More, yeah, more debris, and then you're you can't move it if it's you know too shitty outside to yeah, really exactly. work in a dust storm, and then it's just it just compounds. And part of it too had was a finding There was a financial aspect. The Dust Bowl. During the 1920s, there had been a lot of over leveraging. This is actually, this was a mistake that farmers across the board had made. Uh, again, times were good in the 1920s. Credit was cheap, credit was very available, and a lot of it was domestic. The US was a great creditor. Uh, there were a lot of institutional sources of credit. The American rural banking system was still very strong and could lend out credit very easily. So everyone was very leveraged. Everyone was trying to produce as much as possible because the population was growing substantially. Living standards were very high. Again, very different lifestyle in the 1920s than it was even just 10 years prior. So because of that, uh, there were quite a few farmers, even ones who were only somewhat damaged by the Dust Bowl, who lost a great deal of money. There was a sort of small implosion of the U.S. rural banking sector. We actually mentioned this briefly in our savings and loan crisis episode, that a lot of the early origins of the savings and loan crisis begin around this time when FDR has to find a way to quickly relieve the problems being experienced in the rural banking sector, mostly due to failing farms, failing mortgages. Uh, it was more than just city problems and industrial problems due to the Depression. There were financial problems that had manifested even after the early great early great depression had started due to failing farms it wasn't a catastrophe from a farming aspect um, it was really a catastrophe from a financial aspect um, which is something that's not often talked about i think that most of the history of the dust bowl 
is very humanistic. It tries to focus on the human stories, uh, tries to focus on very specific regions that were badly affected. But the Dust Bowl was sort of a, a minor problem and the long run that was kind of quickly relieved and a lot of that farmland was reclaimed uh, very quickly in the, in the coming years. And most of the farmers that actually lost a lot of their money or lost their farms just moved to other regions of the United States and actually helped develop the farming sectors of those states, namely California. The Californian farming sector really became one of the major farming producers in the country due to the Dust Bowl. I think something like 300,000 people moved to California and turned the California Central Valley into what it is now, which is a, a corridor that produces something like a third of all U.S. or domestic U.S. agricultural consumption it comes out of uh, the California Central Valley. But the Dust Bowl was bad. It wasn't the end of the world. There are a couple interesting things that actually did happen in the 30s after the Dust Bowl sort of died down, one of which, as I said, was rural electri electrification. So you have to remember that even into the 1930s, a lot of farms in the United States, a lot of rural regions, have very little uh, electrification, if uh, predominantly none. It's, it's a rare commodity to find, even into the late 30s. To give you, I believe, one statistic... By, so in 1930, only 13% or so of farms had electricity. 34% had, had a phone. And 58% or so had a car or some kind of mechanization. So only 13% had electricity. By the 40s, had changed drastically. Electricity was... Uh, quadrupled basically by the end of the 40s and especially in the post-war era it was very easy to re-employ a lot of uh, former army corps engineers a lot of guys who had learned a lot of technical skills fighting in europe and in the pacific uh, back into what was a lot of the rural infrastructure programs in the 40s and then a lot of eisenhower's infrastructure development in the 50s uh, suddenly you know all of rural america is very electrified there's still, maybe Tom can speak to this, I think that there are still problems and there's still actually um, a rural electrification association in Virginia that basically manages projects for more rural electrification. But I know that there are some spots where it's still not totally developed. I would imagine a lot of that is driven by the profit motive. I mean, there's, there's just so much less return on your invested transmission lines out to an empty part of the country where you're you're going to have one customer every square mile versus thousands in a city so it's just much more expensive and i would imagine that's the main reason why it's difficult yeah i, I would agree with that and um we have some grazing acts there's a lot of legislation in the 30s a lot of this was done because there, there's political reasons for it. Um, Democratic Party is very, very entrenched with um, the farming lobby, let's call it, in the 30s. And they have certain things that they would like from a, more of a, um, of a laborer's perspective. So one of them would be grazing acts. Another one would be um, 
safety acts. There's a lot of safety provisions that had not really been pioneered properly at a federal level yet that come about in, in the 30s for, for rural workers. Uh, you have a lot of co-ops, early cooperatives starting for, I think, a lot of certain processes. So there's certain co-ops for artificial insemination of dairy cattle, for example. That's one of them. There are a lot of also just dairy production um, co-ops. There's a great deal of, I think, lumber storage co-ops. A lot of certain processes that would take a uh, either agricultural conglomerate or single service corporation with its own bureaucracy and so on uh, to manage is actually just done through farmer cooperatives on these local areas, which is a fairly smart model. Uh, it, it evades a lot of the problems we see in modern agriculture, which is a huge bureaucracy um, that's sort of unnecessary for a lot of very relatively simple things that can be managed by people uh, locally. So that's kind of that kind of takes us out of the 30s. I mean, there's a lot more. There's a lot of, I guess, te technological growth. There's um, rubber tire tra tractors become very popular. Uh, tractors by this point are very complex. There's a whole industry now around repairing tractors. There's a whole industry around manufacturing very specialized tractors. They're very different from the the easy to maintain, easy to utilize tractors of uh, the earth, like you know 20 years prior. Um, a lot of them also sort of all purpose. They're able to traverse any kind of terrain. Now, this kind of fits in with a lot of the manufacturing processes going on in the Northeast and in the Midwest at the time, which is standardization. In the 30s, in order to cost, because there's a huge depression going on, standardization becomes the norm in American manufacturing. So because of that, they realize that American farmland can be pretty diverse in how it's managed. You have a lot of different crops depending on the region, and if you want to have good market penetration, you have to make a tractor that can work anywhere. It can work on an icy field in Iowa. It can work on a uh, rugged field with slight, slight hills in California. It can work uh, near orange groves in Florida. It can work anywhere in the country and any season. So that was one of the big leaps forward the United States had, another sort of mechanized forward. Uh, and then one of the final ones that we can talk about in the 30s was DDT. So this was the beginning of sort of the chemical pesticide industry. Now this is 1939, but this is it had been developed under development for several years and had been tested for several years in the 30s, and this begins a trend in the United States. It's going into the into the World War II era and post-war era, which is we have to get a lot of food to a lot of people because the population of the country is exploding. It's projected to explode even more. It's just going to be way too many people. They all want to eat a lot of fruit. They want to eat a lot of vegetables. They want to have it from anywhere to anywhere. We have to have really great farm-to-market supply chains. Well, how do we prevent a swarm of locusts or aphids from destroying our crops? Those agricultural science grants and loans and systems being set up at various universities across the country kind of develop uh, one of the primary solutions to that, which was very, very crude chemical pesticides. I don't know, Tom, if you have any experience with chemical pesticides, but eventually DDT was banned in 1972 because it was, uh, it was ruining 
lot of topsoil across the United States. Oh, it was also hurting the food chain, I mean, or the ecological chain. I'm not sure exactly what the right term is, but basically the the image that was used for kind of like the anti-DDT campaigns was these these bird eggs being crushed by their mothers because it, it had sort of uh, biomagnified as the different animals that were eaten, like the, the rat eats like some kind of... Uh, uh, nut or something like that that has DDT sprayed on it, then like the hawk grabs that and then basically it just keeps adding and adding and adding up because the uh, the body is not sort of dis- uh, dispersing it. And so it, it ended up in this sort of like ecological uh, issue. Uh, that was what my understanding was. Outside of just the crops, it was getting into the animals as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I know that like you said, Adam, that it was kind of a big campaign to stop it. Um, we do use, you know, we use pesticides, insecticides. Um, just when we were planting, we put on some insecticide along with a fertilizer starter that we'll put right in with the seed. And um, it's not as dangerous, definitely, as it was in the 30s when they first came out. And no one knew, you know, any personal protection, you know, like not to eat when you've got pesticide and shit all over your hands but um it's definitely it's probably still not as it's not 100 percent safe but it's a lot safer than it was uh is anything else though we really um we'll usually hire um any spraying done just because of the cost it's it's an easy is it, is it aerial is it done by airplane um, some, some will be done by airplane that that's usually like a fungicide that we'll put on if, uh, like late, late in the season. Um, you can hire that done cause that'll be like right around when you're tasseling or right around pollination where it's late in the season and the corn's still growing. You don't want to lose too much yield. Mm-hmm. Um, if a fungus gets on your, on the leaf and we'll just kill the plant. And what's the but, other um, mode of uh, distribution of the pesticide? Uh, drive through, drive along sprayer. And do you have to have dedicated equipment for that, or can you buy these attachments yeah, that go on yep. your tractors? Um, I mean, you can buy like a little three-point sprayer, but you're not going to be able to do very much with it. Okay. Uh, now everybody's got the, you know, a big. Um, well, you can have a pole type sprayer too, but a lot of guys now just have a big rig self-propelled sprayer with you know probably a i would say at least a 2000 gallon tank that now, does that mean it's through. automated you said self-propelled what is that so it's one machine it? it's just one machine okay. yeah it's like a tractor with a i mean it's but all you do with it is spray okay gotcha and it's i mean that's you know that's just a big cost kind of for us that it's just easier to hire someone else to do it Right. It's kind yeah. of, a, you know, you look at it as like, you know, it's a cheap hired man because we're kind of busy and it's not really. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, you know, we just can't justify the cost. Yeah, because you only use it, you know, a couple machine. times a year. So why would you have that sitting yeah. around the rest mm-hmm. of the time? That should be working, you know, on multiple farms, you know, and not just yours. So, um, yeah. I just wanted to ask you while we're talking about pesticides about Roundup because that's the sort of famous or infamous Monsanto product that is supposed to obviate the need for, I think it's herbicide. Uh, I'm not quite sure, but please uh, enlighten us if you've run across conversations about that at least. Um, We use Roundup. 
I know a couple guys that don't, and I'm not really exactly sure what else they use for herbicide, um, but Roundup will basically kill anything. And another thing, um, another I guess another technology that was that I wanted to talk about that was developed in the 30s was like corn hybrids was mm-hmm. first being utilized, um, which really changed agriculture i think so that's the that's the that's splicing the, of different corn species or what is that exactly yeah where well basically it started off with you know basically just crossbreeding to where they developed a um a plant that would grow the leaves would grow more upright so they would catch more sun mm-hmm. okay. so they would and then you know and then they would get bigger ears they you would have a higher yield basically right. to where you know, otherwise they were getting about 30 bushels to an acre and now all the way up until today where you're getting 200 over 200. I, I would guess for the whole country, I, w- I would guess that it's probably about 200. That's a would huge be the average, but in the, and, and how much of that yes. is due to hybridization, would you say from 30 to 200? Oh, I mean a lot of it. Okay. A lot of it. And okay. just, and then, you know, the other sort of seed technology where you've got, uh, BT corn, rootworm resistant corn, and just all your, you know, a more drought resistant corn. There's so many different types of hybrids that you could just, you know, there's a seed catalog that's, you know, a half inch thick that you could look through. Now, a couple things. All the different types of hybrids. Of mind, as I'm hearing you talk about this, um, one of the things they talk about in the kind of uh, human medical world is that when you have an over quote-unquote, over usage of antibiotics, you build up immunity on the sort of opposing side. In that case, I guess it's the bacteria or I don't think it's viruses, but basically uh, in the application of farming now, if you're using these same chemicals and technologies to kill off like the, the, uh, the insects or whatever it is that is eating your stuff, do they become resistant to it? They can be, and that is, um, for some weeds, that is becoming a problem. That uh, water hemp is one where that's becoming uh, resistant, and there's a couple other that are kind of starting to becoming harder to kill. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're going to have to find some other way to kill it other than going out and pulling it by hand. Right. And the other thing that came to mind, and it's kind of related but slightly different also for various reasons, um, if you, if you have like, for example, like this is the kind of the old way of not farming necessarily, but just how nature was, it was, it was just not really cultivated. It was kind of just this chaotic jungle and you have a, a, a true diversity of plants, animals, lots of species, lots of you know, varying pockets of, uh, different types of things in relatively small area compared to today, where today you have huge fields of just like the crop that has the most yield. The reason I bring this up is you have you have risk uh, inherent in that setup today because if there is suddenly this uh, this new adaptation in something that wants to eat that that's not human, suddenly your entire your entire crop uh, and crop land I should say is vulnerable to that as opposed to maybe before where it was mixed up much more. And so you'd only have a, a smaller percentage of that being vulnerable to that adaptation. Um, do you have any comments on sort of over utili- over reliance on monoculture as opposed to diversified agriculture? 
Um, yeah, because now uh, in our area, we're starting to see an insect that had been uh, that we had not seen here in a while. And I think that's because I, it's starting to become resistant. So, I mean, again, back to what we talked about earlier, but um, and that's why we put on insecticide on uh, probably not, not quite half of our acres um, just to kind of some insurance on that. So you create like but a fence or something? Crop- Why just half? You just put it on the border? Where do you where do you put it? The insecticide? Yeah. You said you only put half of your crops under insecticide. Oh, so like half you- of our total total acres. And that oh, okay. was because okay. that um it'll the insect will um live in the old corn stalks, so where we wouldn't have baled corn stalks that we bale for bedding. The insect will can still live in the, basically you know lays the eggs and then the eggs will hatch. Mm-hmm. So if you, um, if you're uh, taking the corn stalks off, there's a less likely chance that the um, the insects will show up there. And in your email, you mentioned that you do use crop insurance. Now, does that cover things like uh, in, insects eating the crop? Is it very specific, or it's just a general like? Uh, casualty or I don't know how you'd call it in, in farming, but basically just kind of a, an event that you lose your crop or is it tied to specific types of events that you have insurance for? Um, no, that's all just basically general. You can get more specific and by adding on, you know, right pol- to your policy, like you could add on hail. I used to, but it really wasn't worth it and it's you know it's an insurance company they're going to do everything they can to not pay you so yeah exactly you know a lot of those you know they're not going to want to give you any money we had a hail incident um uh, last year or the year before and plus you know with the with the corn hybrids these days you're really it it can handle so much it would have to hit it at exactly the right time Hmm to you know to really destroy your crop okay which i mean it has happened it happened to my in-laws they lost quite a bit of of corn that year i mean i i actually have a few more questions about crop insurance that has some of the newer technologies embedded in it but uh, hans if if we want to postpone that for later we can i can do that what do you want to do we can start going into it. It kind of gets into something I want to talk about, which is the farm crisis from the 80s. Okay. So why don't you, you go ahead. Thanks. Uh, wh- what I wanted to ask you, Tom, was there's a, there's a company that Monsanto bought um, maybe five years ago called uh, Climate Corporation, and it was a billion dollars, and it was, it, it was just a technology company. All they were doing was they were taking um, – taking like very high resolution to use an analogy from like photography, uh, snapshots of satellite information of cropland doing a lot of number crunching and analytics on it. And basically saying not just your farm or your County, but this specific square meter has this particular amount of risk tied to it. And so in other words, if you have that variation that you've talked about with like different rows and stuff, versus another row, you could actually buy insurance at that granular level. Have you ever come across an insurance salesman presenting you with this idea? Have you already done this type of stuff? I mean, or do you just, you don't go into that depth? Uh, I'm just, cause the, the, this gets to how, how 
not sophisticated, but just how I'm looking for a word. It's it's like micromanage, maybe. I don't yeah, know. Like, yeah, our, that our, seems our like a little society has gotten I, so like every little molecule at, at some point is going to be inventoried, and that that to me would be a nightmare. I mean, we, we've gotten to such a hyper-competitive state where we actually get to the square meter now where we're talking, and, and the company obviously was worth something and made a billion dollars for the, the investors or the founders, but it, it's like farming has gotten so technological today that if you if you just want to farm, I mean, you, you, you can't. You have to compete in this hyper-competitive system, and that's why so few people do it um, because there's, there's just so much... Uh, technology involved capital involved it's not easy so i'm just curious if you have any comments on that technology level uh, in insurance um yeah i we have not our insurance dealer has not um brought any of that up and i don't think i haven't really heard anybody really talk to it other than yeah when that happened i remember reading about it but that's not really a big thing Mm -hmm. okay so Hans, how, how does that tie into the 1980s? So in the 1980s, we had sort of a mini farm crisis. It's actually been sort of forgotten except out of farming-centric media and farming-centric communities um, uh, you know, up until maybe a couple, I think during our savings and loan research, didn't even really understand that there was a general trend around this time in the, I think, 80 to 86. Really what happened was that um, in the 1970s, U.S. farming was great. Uh, There was a huge explosion in output. They seemed to have solved the problem. They were both simultaneously tackling environmental concerns as well as growing mechanized output. Farmers were experiencing high qualities of life. There was um, what appeared to be an efflorescence of small family farms. A lot of farming states uh, controlled the Senate, basically. Everything seemed to be going well. So there was a lot of investment in new technology. Um, By the 1970s, we have really great, not just tractors, we have really great processing plants. And we have a lot of farmer, even smaller farmers, who are trying to invest as much capital as they can to do light scale vertical integration on their own farm, or at least own shares in in some kind of small company that does specific tasks for them in in their local region. Uh, This doesn't really work out too well, mostly because in in 1979, interest rates start to rise. Uh, I think it was Volcker who was in at the time. Paul Volcker basically basically determines that um, got to fight we got to fight inflation and this creates a huge tailspin of problems general problems in the farming sector along with uh, high oil prices and various political export bans there was one with the soviet union which actually from what i remember does not actually contribute too much to this uh there were a lot of other political machinations going on that are less talked about um, U.S. withholding grain uh, exports, withholding soybean exports, corn exports, beef exports for various reasons to various countries. This is sort of at the tail end of the Cold War. There's a lot of power politics going on. Um, there were attempts to prevent any and all export at one point of anything to Warsaw Pact countries, which was 
far more devastating because a lot of people basically did not plan properly for the eventuality that um, they could not end up selling anything. Then the ex the expert band didn't fully go through. There was there was all kinds of weird machinations going on that um, and a lot of farmers had the inside track and large farming companies had the inside track. Uh, and in order to compete with a lot of the large farming companies that had really started to rise in the 1970s, um, due somewhat to Nixon, but also under Carter, who uh, deregulated the farming sector to a great extent, um, a lot of farmers took out very risky loans, took on a great deal of insurance. And when commodity prices fell precipitously, especially starting around 84, they had been falling and falling, and a lot of farmers were very over-leveraged up to then and were struggling or going out of business. Um, there were a series of bad winters. 84 just collapses. Well, well, suddenly a lot of farmers can't sell anything or they have no, or they have nothing to sell. And a lot of insurance policies basically go belly up. Now, at one point, this was part of what triggered the final meltdown moment for the savings and loan crisis, that uh, a lot of these um, rural banks that had been insured by um, FISLIAC, FIS, FISLIAC as it was the, the acronym, and by the FDIC as well, are, are instantly out of money. The foreign credit system imploded, uh, hadn't done that in 60 years up to then. Uh, no one really understood what to do, so a lot of farmers simply just went out of business. Insurance policies died on the vine. People just stopped paying their premiums. Uh, small insurance companies in the Midwest went out of business or were uh, subsumed into larger insurance companies. A lot of the farming insurance companies you see now that are very large and, and uh, very prominent in Midwestern states are the result of the absorption of various insurance bureaucracies due to a string of smaller insurance failures in the 1980s. Um, there have been a lot of articles this year, last year, that you might have seen them, um, talking about this could be the 1980s all over again, or why this, four reasons why this isn't the 1980s, or whatever. Uh, a lot of very obsequious titles, kind of like that. But generally, I think the trend that people are noticing is that um, a, a series of bad winters, um, it, Tommy mentioned like the trade war uh, could kind of fill the place for what the the commodity price drop in the 80s had. Um, that there's a lot of factors going into this where farmers could be in a similar situation where they're not able to pay their insurance premiums or insurance premiums or insurance policies basically die on the vine and there could be huge economic fallout. Hans, because of the interest rate change, how much of this was related to people being over leveraged? I would say that was a huge part of it. Okay. I think that a lot of farmers basically just took out in the seventies. Remember credit was towards the end of the seventies. Credit was actually pretty cheap. People got a lot of so credit. Were they, they on like adjustable investment. interest rate loans, like in housing? I mean, why, why would no. an interest rate rise affect somebody who had already taken out a loan? I guess is my question. I'm not really sure. That's basically what has been as basically. What's I, I know this was a problem because yeah. I've read about this. I just, I'm trying to understand why it was a problem. Um, and Nick, if you're still there, uh, we had talked about this probably a couple of years ago, but there, I forgot his name, but there was a guy who was kind of 
ranting and raving about um, our uh, our special people as as a root cause of this. But it was it was mainly a financial thing. I think it was he was a farmer and he was kind of going up because uh, I think the interest rates were changing. I think that was the main thing. But uh, if anybody could clarify why this is particularly tied to the change at the Fed, I'd be very curious about that. Tom, what do you think? On like okay, what I'm trying to get at. I remember when Nick and I were talking about this. Is I was asking Nick rhetorically about this farmer. I was like, why did he have so much debt to begin with? That's kind of my root question here. Like, do you have to borrow a lot of money to farm? Do you have to? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, and what can you explain that? Well, part of it's land. I mean, they're not making any more of it, and. Land is expensive, and then your equipment's expensive. Okay. Seeds I, expensive. I, I know not a lot, but I've I've met like ranchers who own their land. Like they don't borrow money, from what I can tell. So why is it in, different in farming? Uh, the different ground. I mean, ranch land would be quite a bit cheaper. Right. right. Uh, you know, uh, ground around here would probably go for at least. I mean, good good ground would probably go for at least nine thousand dollars an acre okay at least if it's going to a public auction that's going to go for probably and so okay 10, 000, so let's let's just 12, use this 000. as an example so let's say you've got one acre nine thousand bucks how much money can you make from that from farming per year uh, like what's the what's the financial yield on that i actually looked this up once and it was like not that much it was like three percent or something so i can understand like if you, yeah it's really not your returns not that much right and especially you know, so you have to own a lot, which is today, expensive. I mean, and yeah, you eventually get so, it, but you were looking at that spread. Today, basically, you have to have a return that's higher than your interest payment. Please continue. Yeah. Okay. All I wanted to say was, today, for every dollar that you spend on food, I get fifteen cents of that. Like I'm making fifteen cents of that. That's what. But in the '80s, before the farm crisis. For every dollar that was spent on food, a farmer would make thirty-one cents on that. So wow, okay. Now he was making that before the crisis in the eighties. Yeah. Okay, and then after the crisis, what would you estimate? I mean, it was he was losing money basically. It went down that much. Basically, yeah. And I'm guessing I don't know as far as the the interest rate. I don't know where they would have been getting loans from. I mean, the, you know, there's government programs okay. that you can get loans from where yeah. you know if it's a fixed rate for. 10 years and then yep. they'll change the interest rate just like, you know, a bank would. It so, depends, you know, you get a bar, you, you know. So that makes sense. I mean, basically the, the interest rates went f- almost overnight. I mean, in, in practical terms, essentially, yes, it went, it went up from Hans, correct me on the numbers here, but it was what? 8% to 20%. I mean, it was, a, it was a big jump. Okay. So, now, this is part of a, a, a quote on why the interest rates factored into the farm crisis. But so in 1976, they were at 6.8 percent, these interest rates. In 1981, which is at the peak, 21.5 percent. Which yeah. I think. Yeah, so I was pretty close. So basically. Yeah, that, that, that yeah. was never been. That was the highest in, huge, in American history. Jump. In American history, jump. it was the highest it ever got. Yeah, and so if your margins are well, thirty thirty one percent margin is not bad, but the, the the I don't know how much of that the rest of it was eaten up by interest rates. So in other words, like let's say that uh, fifty cents, uh, 
was eaten up by interest rates and you get and you have to pay, you know, the 10 cents for materials and, and seeds and all that. OK, if if the cost that was previously 8 percent and it cost you 50 cents on the dollar for sales suddenly more than doubles, then your entire dollar is eaten up. And so you've got no profit left. So that that ex- I think explains why the the reinvestment costs just jumped catastrophically for these guys. Um, I hope that made sense for listeners, but I can, I can understand why this, this is an issue. So, um, so after the crisis, it it was probably negative for these guys. And Tom, why is it, why is it 15 cents now versus 30 cents before the farming crisis? Do you think? I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if it's still recovering from that or if it's just that, uh, maybe just more competition i mean global markets integration maybe kind of maybe thing. probably global market comp yeah probably when you're looking at the yeah the global markets when you're so, i don't know though so when you um in in your business at least like you're growing you're not really in the corn business per se. You're in the cattle business, right? And you, you sort of have taken on Correct. the kind of job of growing your feed. But you're you're mainly sensitive, I would imagine, to what happens on on the back end where you're you're selling your product. And so, uh, your cattle is is beef cattle, I would assume. Correct. Da- dairy. Yeah. Okay. And then, do you have international competitors in this business? I mean, C- Canada. I don't really know who grows a lot of uh, cows uh, for for meat, but uh, outside the United States. But has that affected you at all? The markets uh, globally? Um, not necessarily globally, but yeah, it's Canada and Australia. I think are the Australia. other two big. Yeah, outback steakhouse um, ads taught me that. Yeah. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but well, no, that's what not about, really uh, Argentina, no. right? That's true. Yeah. That's Argentina too. Yeah. Point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess Northern no. Japan too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they Kobe beef. They like to grow. <laughs> Actually that's in the South, but, um, Oh yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, they think they have grown, uh, cows up in Hokkaido cause they're just crazy like that in Japan. But yeah, please continue Tom. <laughs> Um, no, there's really not much global competition in the cattle market. Um, a couple years ago, uh, beef prices were, I mean, phenomenal and not just, you know, uh, cattle prices were really high. And then right now there's a group of guys who are suing a bunch of packers because when beef, when cattle prices were so high, the packers weren't making hardly any money. But then, I don't know if you guys knew, like in the past couple of years, beef prices in the stores were really high, but cattle prices kind of leveled off. Sort of like gas prices. And the packer, yeah, so the, I mean, like the packers were making, say, like $200 a head, and the farmers, you know, like we weren't really, I mean, we did okay, but we're not, you know, for as high as beef prices were in the store. Mm-hmm you know, cattle prices should have gone. So there's, I mean, like there's a big lawsuit going on. So is that like, can you go through like the justice department, antitrust kind of thing 
I don't know if that's yeah, that's angle. what it is. It's an antitrust right. law. Like, I don't know how they would prove collusion between all of you know, like Tyson and has there JBL ever been or... a successful antitrust suit against any agricultural <sighs> concern? Because as you point think. out, there I can't are huge think of one offhand. that like run the majority of a particular segment of the, uh, the agriculture market. Like Tyson is chicken. Um, I forget the Swift. Uh, who's the Who's the big pork processor? I'm trying to remember. Um, Swift, yeah, Swift. Smithfield. Is Smithfield. Is the one I was Smithfield. Of. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. It. yeah. So the, the, they're huge, um, and they've. I mean, Arkansas is basically like run by Tyson and Walmart. Um, yeah, and now they're. I think they're going to start making their own. They're going to have their own beef lots, beef feed lots, their own, mm. like they how they've done wow. with with chicken with poultry. To where you know they own their own barns and they just hire somebody else to do it. So this this is actually from a friend of the show who was curious about concentrated feedlots. Is that how you guys do your thing? Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. And and how does that affect the the cows? Um, I mean, the alternative is grazing, right? So why have you chosen to to first of all not just let them use your land for grazing? Do you get more yield, basically, and you can have more cattle with this kind of uh, specific type of cultivation of, of corn versus having just grassland kind of thing? And then you can – I'm trying to answer my own question here, but please tell me why you chose yeah. that route. You just get more out of it. Okay. Yeah, you can you can produce them faster. It'll take them probably two years to really mature if, they're, if all they're eating is grass. Okay. Probably maybe not a full two years, but I would say. And so it's, it's quite quite a bit longer, and you can feed them out faster, and and I don't know. I always i I prefer a corn fed corn fed beef to grass fed beef. Actually, hmm, interesting. That's a lot of people. Me. I don't know. The opposite, but but yeah, I, that, that's it might good have been that just you. The ones that I had sometimes yeah. they can kind of taste a little rangy to me. I don't know, a little tough, but. It kind of it probably all depends on genetics, you know. Maybe I just sure. had a bad one, but sure. I don't no, know. It's great. You should stand by your product. I mean, I'm glad you feel that way about your, you know, corn fed and everything. Um, I'm not really. I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just asking, you know, kind of like logic questions here because it always sort of uh, fascinated me why there you see like these large like hay bales, and then those those hay bales would go to these animals that could have just been eating it directly off the ground like I, I don't i never really understood exactly why that happens um and that does happen like there are and i know um some not necessarily farmers but they just let's just say they have a field okay then they grow hay on it maybe they just don't have a big enough field maybe you can explain to me in the particulars of, of like hay growing hay why does that even happen versus just having the animals graze it directly Versus, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's different about, than corn, but I'm just you know for for grass, you know, it seems very simple. So I'm sorry, I cut you yeah, off. Yeah, I, I don't even. Uh, I'm not even sure how much ground we'd need to be able to feed the amount of cattle right. that we do okay. in order, you know, for uh, yeah. for just entire grass yeah. to go entire grass fed. Um, that just takes a lot. I don't. If it's an acre ahead that you'd need. At least, yeah. Maybe two. To I don't even know to finish it out. I'm not sure. Yeah, and and but I hope like I'm our, not getting too yeah, much into the weeds here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
our cowherd will graze. They'll be out all year on grass. And then in the fall and winter, they'll be on like corn stalks. They can eat corn stalks. Okay. And then we'll feed them also in the winter. Uh, a mixed ration. Okay, so you have to you have to think about storing certain types of of crops for your animals during the yeah, winter. Yeah, and and you have to harvest harvest uh, corn differently. Right. Also. Right. Okay. For different types of feed stuff. The the reason I'm asking these kind of specific questions is I want some people maybe they haven't thought about this to, to understand how complicated this is and how non-trivial it is to basically just pick one strategy versus another because correct me if i'm wrong here but if you suddenly decided you want to have everything open range graze fed animals get rid of your concentrated feedlots i mean that, that'd be a huge capital change a lot of money involved a lot of uh, process uh, changes that you'd have to do uh, this is not a trivial thing to just flip a switch and so I would imagine a lot of the industry is built up around patterns and practices that have been built up for a long time and it's not easy to shift on a dime. And because of that, you have to be very careful about the markets, the weather, all these things that you can't control because, and that's why you have insurance for this. So it's just trying to, trying to kind of add a little bit of color to why farming is, is a little bit more complicated than probably a lot of people assume it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's, I mean, so much planning that's gone on. And uh, I mean, the big thing right now in the cattle, what they're trying to do, they're trying to shift it to, um, like when you say a concentrated lot, they're all in a, so in ours, they're all in, I mean, there'll be different groups in different yards, what we would call, and they're on concrete. Um, they have access to a shed but they can still walk around out in a yard and they still have plenty of space to walk around. But now they're making a shift to go to a um, all enclosed into a pitted barn where they're over a, they're on slatted concrete over a pit to control manure basically. Yeah. And this is all a big push to, I mean, this is what, um, you know, how the hog industry is now. I mean, I've How seen the in the, in the, in the chicken and the poultry all... industry as well. I've, I've yep. actually seen mm-hmm. these these yep. operations. Yeah. I mean, they go in there at night. They got blue lights over the whole like apparatus, so the chickens are blinded by this stuff. But the guys can work and pick them up, and they pick, literally pick them up by their legs and they shove them into these cages to get shipped off to the sort of slaughterhouse. Um, it's a really nightmarish scene, honestly. And so I'm glad to hear that you give these guys or the, the cows the, an opportunity to to do a little stretching their legs, but I don't know how much choice you have. I mean, it's a competitive market and capitalism wants more money and it'll give it, give more money to the guy who's willing to cut corners and not be so humane. And so I, I, I'm getting at some of the the objections that people have to these types of operations where they see the cattle basically standing knee high in their own manure. And they're like, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. But you know, at the same time, people don't want to pay higher prices for, for, hamburgers and so it's how the system works there's incentives for people to do these things yeah and those barns i mean the manure they're not laying around in their own shit i mean the manure will fall down into the pit the pit's probably like 10 foot deep and then you know they just pump out the manure but um i don't think i'd build one of those 
I really don't. I, it it costs so much. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a huge. That's like a generational thing, like that you build for the next generation, basically. Yeah. I think it costs a, probably about like three quarters of a million dollars to put one of those up. Wow. And that's not even, uh, you know, like a decent size. I don't know if a regular one would be probably about a thousand head, and then you gotta pay to stock, you know, to put cattle in there. There, there was an article, I, I think it was in The Guardian, uh, it's a British publication at the very least, that was interviewing a Midwestern farmer, and he was talking about, uh, this could be an example, and what he was sort of getting at was that the amount of power that the big agribusiness corporations have, and not not just on the sort of you know legal sense, but just in terms of size, like you know, these are billion-dollar corporations, not multi-million-dollar, you know, operations of owned by one family but the billion dollar scale companies they they can easily invest in a three quarters of a million dollar facility that's no big deal um and because of that it it's sort of the market will give them the reward and not give the smaller guy even though he's a little bit less efficient even though he does a good job he's just that three percent less efficient and so the entire market or a big chunk of the market goes to the big big businesses and he's also saying that there's a lot of uh lobbying that they do to get favoritism from the subsidies that skews towards them versus the other guy and then they use a lot of really nasty standard oil-esque tactics to kind of buy up the small businesses as well so i don't know if you have any comments on sort of the threat of big business big agribusiness in particular but I'm hearing this a lot from at least the uh, sort of articles that I'm I'm taking a look at with regard to farming. I would say, yeah, there is a threat. Um, like I was saying, you know, I mean, the pork industry, that's all just basically automated. So is the poultry business. Those are all just massive, you know, I don't think there's any independent, there's hardly any independent farmers now that really own you know, a whole lot of their own, uh, like chickens say that's not in a commercial sense as Hans was getting at. I think what, what's ended in, ending up happening is that people who want to do this don't, can't really sell their products. I mean, they, they're, they're just, they're three times as much as what you can buy at the store. And so they do it for themselves. There's a lot of subsistence permaculturists that I mentioned it to you in, in one of the emails we passed back and forth. I I'm fascinated by this stuff because one of my passions is getting people off this kind of hyper insane system that we all are stuck in. Um, but if you do that, you're, you're not going to be able to compete against Tyson, obviously, but you can grow your own chickens and have an egg a day. That's no big deal, but it's, it's just going to be yours. It's not going to be sold, you know, in Japan. It's just going to be for you. But I think that's, that's an interesting development that I think people are just realizing, like you just can't win at this game. So don't play the game. Um, I hope that doesn't happen to you, obviously, but it's. I think people looking to get into it, that's kind of how they, they look at the system. It's like, okay, there's no way, so I'll just do it for me and my family kind of thing. Yeah, that's true, but I think there's also, um, there's been a big development in, like, say, agritourism to where, you know, <laughs> you might have a little farm and then you that's true. have people come out and, that's you know, and then you stuff. say, hey, I mean, that, there can't here's be my, many I mean, some that. of it. But yeah. there is one of my friend's parents just like a few years ago, they started a little store 
to where they raise their own pigs and mm-hmm. it's all, you know, antibiotic free and, and yep. everything. There, there, and they some, sell their own meat yeah, and then they sell a lot reason. of other yeah. local products. Yeah. I mean, that's one way that you could kind of, I guess, fight the system or that some people right. are. Well, have you heard of uh, Joel Salatin? He's made the rounds in the kind of uh, intelligentsia sphere. So I'm wondering if you think he's he's full of it. But have you heard of the name at least? The name sounds familiar, but I guess I'd have to. Uh, maybe I'd have it, to listen it, it, to it. It's like, I think his name, his company's name is like Polyphase, uh, Polyphase Farms. But basically his whole th- idea is you you can kind of integrate a lot of these very industrialized operations in a very old fashioned way and actually still make money doing it. And his particular, um, uh, uh, business is chickens and his, it's kind of an invention. It's very simple again, but it's, it's basically a novel idea is he integrates the existing land of cattle farmers with his chicken operations. And so basically he has these, little rectangular pens that he moves over the the cattle uh, land where the cattle are grazing and then the chickens actually go in and pick up bugs and things like that and it, it's kind of a uh, a very symbiotic relationship as opposed to yeah i've uh, seen uh, those yeah, yeah. And, and that's him and he's he's done talks at google you know ooh. but uh basically his his whole mission if you want to call it that is to get more people involved in farming and it's very labor intensive and we we've had on and we've been on their podcast as well but the guys from rebel yell uh masonius has uh mentioned this a couple times and i remember him pointing this out to me was that american agriculture is not necessarily um i think let, let me get this correct he was basically saying per acre it's it's not it's not efficient usage of the land in terms of the yield that's potentially get your, you can get out of it, but it's very labor efficient. So in other words, if you put a bunch of people like this whole, sort of like Joel Salatin approach on the land, you can increase the yield. You would just have to increase the amount of workers involved. And so Joel is basically like of the mind that there's a lot of unemployed people and maybe even nice if they could actually get out of, you know, mom's basement and do something. And, and he basically puts forward this concept where you can actually make $60,000, which sounds a little bit optimistic to me, but basically he has this model where you can, you can raise chickens. Uh, and it's, it's not mechanized. It's, it's low tech. It's not a lot of capital involved. And so I, I like that idea. And, and he's also got his own little kind of boutique business of, you know, non factory raise kind of thing. And that, that's a marketing strategy that a lot of, uh, small farmers try, and so, oh yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's mostly what it is, and to make people feel good about. Yeah, no, it what is. They're eating. And, and that's that's. I think um, probably. I don't know. You tell me what you estimate this to be, but that's probably going to convince maybe ten percent of the people out there that want to buy food. But the rest of them, they look at the price. I, I would assume so, but maybe yeah. incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's all people who are you know buying shopping at whole foods thinking that they're yeah. fighting the system or something whole paycheck that's right yeah <laughs> uh, hans where were we uh i'm just asking a bunch of questions here but 
we were talking no, about. This, this is good. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm still glad we have an actual farmer on the no, show. I am too. That's why I'm yeah. taking the opportunity. Because <laughs> I read all this like, stuff and I talk to people, but, you know, I don't have a real, like, farming business. I mean, I just try to grow It was either that or, while, or get, but... get some, like, pine tree kid on, on Twitter to come on and try and no, 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 this is <laughs> pretend much that he knows this stuff. <laughs> this is much better. You know, um, you had mentioned something about antitrust. Uh, antitrust has been asleep at the wheel for decades. On uh, I, I know that's why I asked too. And, and I mean, there's actually the companies they could easily it, break them up. But go ahead. There's a there's an interesting piece of uh, legislation that the USDA has under its belt. The USDA, in particular, could have stopped a lot of this for uh, for several decades, even starting in the 20s. And uh, there was a Packers and Stockyards Act. That's very. There's a lot of little things that were placed into it. It's one, it was one of those first pieces of legislation that became notorious for e- earmarking and bullshit and all kinds of little cutouts and special addendums and whatever. Um, but the general purpose of it was to prevent meat packers and processors from utilizing unfair or deceptive practices against farmers and ranchers. Now, that's super vague, and it was intended to be vague because the intention was... The USDA and the Justice Department will have the capability to prevent any kind of um, corporate legal arrangement that might be unfair to farmers. Because you have to remember, in 1920, in 1921, when the years when this was being debated and worked out, yes, farming was becoming less a part of American life, but 90 years ago, Farmers were a powerful part of the American political equation. Farming states, farmer lobbies, farmer groups, organizations, associations of all kinds from everywhere with different sub-organizations. I mean, millions of people invested in this stuff. Um, they They had a great deal of political sway. And they're the ones who force their representatives and their senators to fight for this kind of very broad, powerful legislation that would prevent meatpackers like Tyson, that would prevent big agricultural firms before they really became a huge part of American life from even starting. The intent, they saw this coming down the pipe. They foresaw the potential problems early on in the 20s. Um, and there was legislation crafted to prevent it. And it has almost never been utilized on a large-scale uh, company. Uh, and the last 30 years have been particularly uh, important towards this analysis of large-scale agricultural conglomerates coming together. Uh, many of them now multinational, with uh, Monsanto and Bayern, I believe, um, you have the, the intertwining interests of uh, the UK, Ireland, America, and Germany, agricultural sectors now in a one large multinational firm um, with all kinds of subsidiary groups, all kinds of properties in multiple countries. It's incredible that no one has stood up to this, despite the Americans, the British, and especially the Germans having strong uh, corporate legislation that could be utilized against these companies, and no one has. I think a large part of it is lobbying. A large part of it is, um, I think that the USDA in particular, uh, it's difficult to, work, from my understanding, to work at the USDA, and has been for a long time. 
and not be entrenched in some way with the industry, in the private industry side. Uh, it very much is a revolving door because the, because the agricultural science field is a small field. It's not particularly sexy. It doesn't pay well, generally. Um, so it is a small field, and you have a limited talent pool to draw from. Outside of a big, large pool of lawyers, people who actually do the real agricultural analysis um, is, is a very small pool in the United States and outside of the United States an even smaller pool. So it's inevitable that you're going to get a lot of political backslapping, revolving door tactics and lack of enforcement, lack of new regulation. I don't think that any like real major um, anti-corporate farming legislation has been passed in four or five decades. The, the, la the last guy that actually stood up to the, the corporate lobbies, he had the unfortunate name of Gaylord uh, Nelson. Nielsen. He was from Wisconsin in the 70s. He was a senator, and he, he was like the, the leading voice, because in the 70s, Wisconsin was essentially had two things going for it. It made a bunch of stuff, and it farmed a bunch of stuff. That was the whole economy of the state of Wisconsin. Was Common based name around, back then. I think there was a baseball player named Gaylord Perry, if I'm not mistaken, but please continue. It, <laughs> well, so anyways, it, it was a factory and farm state across the board. So his primary interests were protecting all the small farmers in Wisconsin, I think, um, Tom had mentioned something uh, as well that we should clarify. Um, before the show, he said, you know, large-scale corporate farming isn't as prominent in, as in some parts of the country it is in others. And I think in the South and in Southern California um, and maybe in parts of the Pacific Northwest, it's much more prominent. Whereas in Wisconsin, in the Midwest, uh, in, in maybe even parts of Appalachia, I'm sorry, Appalachia, it is less common. It's still very, it's very um, small corporate based or family, I guess, family based. Uh, so, you know, his, his primary interests were in protecting the state. Well, he lost that battle. That was his prime, that was sort of the political battle that defined his, his time in the Senate and he lost it. And, you know, in the 70s, uh, despite his best efforts, there were a, a swath of major murders approved by the United States government, uh, even under Jimmy Carter, for large-scale farming production. Part of it had to do with uh, a foreign policy argument that basically the United States was going to export its food in as many quantities as possible around the world to gain approval after the failures of Vietnam. This was one of the ways in which they felt they could buy off the planet. And the easiest way to do that in their minds was to approve large-scale mergers and large-scale acquisitions to um, increase efficiency, to increase output, to increase utilization, uh, and so on, and to increase employment. Because the, the idea was that you could create a whole other bureaucracy for each of these companies, and that would employ a bunch of people that no longer had farm labor or no longer could do certain jobs, because we were already starting to see the end of American manufacturing in the late 70s. So they had to find jobs to replace um, a lot of those lost manufacturing jobs. So, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't ever foresee um, the United States really getting back to enforcing large-scale regulations against um, major agricultural companies or, or meat packers or any of the sort, primarily because they have too much political influence. I also and think that it's just there's not enough farmers to raise farmers, an issue yeah. with politicians. Politicians right. are basically, they're in office 
for what half the time and then the rest of the time they're campaigning and so they have to think very critically about what issues are going to resonate the most with my constituency and outside of the midwest which has a relatively small population compared to the coastal areas uh you're you're not going to get a national politician on a a congressional level to really get an alliance of congress people together and do this I, i just don't see enough uh, constituents uh, weighing in on this outside of the farmers. And that's only, you know, a few percentage points at most. But Tom, I don't know what what you think about that. I'm just theorizing here. Yeah, I agree. That's what it, that's what it is. There's there's just not enough farmers to really raise hell about it. Mm -hmm. It would have to, you know, it would have to be something that was, that would be completely egregious that you would get the, like, you know the national media on it or something to yeah it would have to affect really, food prices or to, something i mean it would have to affect everybody basically right and exactly. not just some you know some asshole like me who's in the middle of the country that you know the coastal elites don't care about anyway so. well I, I have a quote this is where uh i think well, this will slot in well uh for you and i'd like to hear what you think this is uh from the blog the burning platform i will put a link to it in the show notes uh but this is a comparison drawn between the USSR and the United States in its sort of twilight years, which a lot of us think it's in. Um, So commoners, uh, the comrade class in the USSR and the deplorables of flyover country are the ones who grease the wheels of civilization and keep it functioning. They are more than satisfactory as cannon fodder and as dependents of the state, but in the eyes of the ruling classes, they're disposable. In the aftermath of the explosions of Chernobyl, nearly three quarters of a million souls were used like donkeys to rid the world of the radioactive debris, to tunnel underneath the core itself to prevent further contamination of the water table, and to relocate their fellow citizens, often against their will, while the heads of state continued to spin their fantasies of a controlled situation. And that is our present situation today in America, where our betters have sold us out to foreign interests, undermined our history and culture in order to usher in a utopian fantasy that they neither believe in nor practice, while we suffer in a simmering silence filled with righteous indignation on the verge of a meltdown of equal proportions to that of April 26th, 1986. What do you think, Tom, about uh, people calling you flyover country? I mean, it is what it is. I really don't care. I think I'm, you know, I'm just concerned about the growing disconnect of people don't understand agriculture at all to where you have, I think I read a study the other day that uh, I think it was like 7% of U.S. adults think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. So, you know, adults? that. <laughs> yes. Mm. I'd like when to see some uh, more specifics, <laughs> demographic data on that one too. But yeah, uh-huh. yeah, who knows? It could have been in the inner city. Who knows? Uh-huh. But you know, when you have people who think that, or that, you know, roosters lay, lay brown eggs, you know, it's just like people just don't understand where food comes from, or just not just agriculture, but any labor-intensive job, you know, that people just don't understand how it's done. Anything that's produced in the Midwest or like what they say in flyover country, people just have no clue. Well, next week we're going to be... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, next week we're going to be talking about a 
an author among other authors in the general category of kind of a collapsitarianism, if you've ever heard of that. And basically his, uh, his sort of catchphrase is a catabolic collapse. And basically he, he views the, the modern world as a system that is just overcomplicated and like in physics, entropy basically is a property that something will reach a sort of steady state from something that is, is overly complex. So if, if it's, if it's, if it's like bundled up in this really tight ball of, of pressure, eventually it's just going to collapse into something simpler because it's just, it's just happier in that situation. And you can draw the analogy to the civilization in the sense that people are not understanding where chocolate milk comes from. They, they literally get their, their food delivered to them by clicking a few buttons on their phone and then some uh, drone helicopter device shows up with uh, their order from McDonald's and they have no concept, zero concept of how that even works. And it's kind of akin to idiocracy perhaps. Uh, but the problem is you have these kind of like elf class people like basically programming all the sort of technology that runs everything and people like yourself who actually are on the ground doing what needs to be done. But the majority of people are kind of in these superfluous sinecure type occupations and if something goes wrong uh the whole thing falls apart and it's not really a good place to be in uh i I don't i don't think it's good that people are living off their modern conveniences to the level that they're living on because it comes at the cost of them being able to do it themselves if push comes to shove and i don't foresee the the system sustaining itself because frankly it's just it's just too much it's just too complicated it's it's stressing people out people aren't happy uh people don't really understand how it works frankly uh and i think that gnaws at them on a subconscious level if not a conscious level and so that my my point of view is that i think things need to get simpler rather than more complicated uh and i don't think it's going to happen any other way because it's just the law of uh of physics and the, the history of civilizations is that they don't continue to to go in one direction. They usually fall apart at some point. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that or with regards to agriculture, but I think your example sort of slots into that, that theory that things are just getting out of hand. Yeah, I think it would... I mean, it, if things were to go back to a simpler time, it would be much better. And I think that's probably why you know I'm only seeing half of my percentage of every dollar that's spent on food is say even in the 90s i mean you know our farm was much more diverse and there were still like small creameries in every little small town everybody milked you know basically everybody milked we milked for a while and you take your products to the local creamery you take your milk there you could buy your cheese, your milk from there. You could, you know, there was local packers, there was local butchers. You knew where all your, basically, you knew where all your food came from, except for, you know, whatever your region couldn't grow. And I think if we went back to a time like that, it would be a lot better. At the crossroads, trying to read the sun. Tell me which way I should go to find the answer 
and all the time I know, plant your love and let it Plant your love and let it grow. 